0: Who's enjoying Ecclesiastes? Uh, Not a ton of amens on that. You don't read this one at a party, right? Uh, Tim's reviewed uh, an overview of the book last week and read chapter 1 last week. Uh, This week, in chapter 2, it's laid out really nicely for us in the different uh, ways that Solomon tried to find satisfaction without God. I mean, that's what this book is about, is trying to find satisfaction in life without God. And uh, as a young person, as you can imagine, considered it kind of a buzzkill, right? Didn't love it, um, but these days I really treasure it. really think Ecclesiastes is, is precious to us and very helpful to us if we'll let it be. And uh, the reason I say that is because it reminds me of this, this thing that happened in a movie once. Uh, has anybody ever seen uh, Apollo 13? That is a good one, right? Great movie. And uh, I can't remember who the astronauts were, so I'm just going to say uh, Hanks and Bacon, you know, Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon. You, it's easier to picture them like that, too. <clears throat> but uh, long story short, this is in the history books, so I'm not spoiling anything for you. This is what happens with Apollo 13. They're trying to go to the moon, and they have a catastrophic technical failure, like where power's going out, they're losing oxygen. This, The mission to the moon is over. <laughs> they're just trying to get home and not die in space. That's what the movie's about. And so NASA on the ground is, they're being as creative as they can to figure out how to bring them home. These guys could die in so many ways. It's such a dangerous thing, and so they have to shut off the power. And in this one particular scene, uh, Hanks and Bacon are hanging out, and uh, Bacon is in front of uh, this really sophisticated control panel with all these impressive buttons and levers. And this is spaceship stuff, you know. This is the most advanced stuff in the human world at that point, right? And so. Hanks is talking to him, and eventually he says, what's that right there? And he points to this little piece of paper with a piece of tape on it, and that tape is holding that paper onto a button. There's this control panel with a little piece of paper, and there's the word no on it. It just says N-O. And uh, Hanks says, yeah, what's that? And Bacon goes, oh, sorry. He goes, I've been pretty stressed out, and I'm really tired, and I'm going to paraphrase the jargon here, but he says, I didn't want to shoot you guys into outer space on accident. And Hanks goes, yeah, good thinking. (laughs) So, uh, the picture there is of this extremely high-stakes situation these guys are in, with so many ways to screw up once and for all, right? And one of the things keeping them from making this mistake that could have happened by accident is this little primitive piece of paper. We're talking paper. Kids use paper, right? The book of Ecclesiastes is that message on front of those options that could easily destroy our lives, right? This is not the first time this has happened. Like Solomon's testing of everything on the planet is old news. He's not the only one who's done this. This happens with our neighbors all the time, searching for satisfaction outside of God. But as we begin to follow Jesus and see that he's really the only meaningful uh, pursuit in life, it gets tempting to still go back, right? To go to chase pleasure or wisdom or work as a sense of meaning. And this book is like that note. It just says, no, just don't do it. It's a dead-end sign in front of a street that we could easily get lost on, right? And so I really treasure it for that reason. As a kid, wasn't so into the book of Ecclesiastes, but when I become serious about following Jesus, it's a great reminder that you're not missing out on all that much, by partying your brains out and trying to get promoted and trying to make a lot of money and just all of these sensual things, they're just gonna leave you disappointed. You can, it's just gonna leave you disappointed, right? And so that helps me understand that when Jesus says, store your treasure on earth, or excuse me, store your your treasure in heaven, um, it makes it way easier to be like, yeah, I don't need to store stuff on earth that much, right? So it's a helpful reminder. It helps me believe a little bit more that what Dallas Willard says, is uh, Jesus does not deny us personal fulfillment. He shows us the only way to it. Solomon shows you how not to go after personal fulfillment. And we begin to take Jesus a little bit more seriously when he talks about losing our lives to find it in him. So it's really helpful for that reason. So like I said, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is very well outlined for us. It's awesome how the progression of his attempts to find meaning outside of the Lord start in kind of a childish way where you're directly pursuing pleasure. You're just doing what feels good, is what kids do. Um, A little bit higher than that, his second attempt is more uh, wise, right? So he's going to use wisdom to try to find satisfaction. And then third, finally, uh, he pursues work, which is a pretty grown-up and fairly noble thing to do, but he finds that disappointing as well. But um, we're going to go through these, and uh, so we'll start with number one. First, we're going to talk about the dead end of Self indulgent pleasure, looking for pleasure itself, that being the goal of everything we do. So, for each of these points, I want to remind you pleasure, work, wisdom, they're not everything, but they're something. Like, we can't just ignore them, we can't just dismiss them or reject them entirely. They do have a place in the Jesus following life. They're just not the pursuit. They can't be your target. And so it would be a mistake to reject them entirely. So I'm going to get redundant with this so we don't forget. Pleasure is important, but it's not the point. All right? The reason it's not the point, the reason pleasure cannot fulfill us unless it's in God, is uh, Solomon ran into this truth, and so many people have run into this phenomenon that they've written about it in psychology books over and over again. Uh, College freshmen can tell me Um, about the hedonic treadmill. It's a weird word, but uh, the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaption comes from the word hedonism, right? Which is just going about in life, believing that pleasure is ultimate. That's your goal. Pleasure is ultimate if you're a hedonist. And most of us know what a treadmill is, right? It doesn't matter how fast or long you run on that thing. It even goes on an incline, right? The point of this thing is to where you don't move after. You might've gotten some exercise, but put those word pictures together, right? We've got someone who pursues pleasure, and the picture of a treadmill. And the idea is that as you experience the same great thing over and over again, it becomes less and less satisfying. Like, they've written about this quite extensively. Solomon experienced it, and he was pretty irritated as a result. He was really disappointed. So what it means is as we gain pleasure, it takes more of that same cause of pleasure to even get us to where we were the first time we experienced it. So C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a bunch of books, great thinker. He described, he didn't use the word hedonic, treadmill, but he was talking about this thing that's been happening for so long when we seek pleasure directly. And he said, it's an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing satisfaction. It's cruel. It's kind of ironic. Dave Ramsey, uh, not an English literature professor, he's a finance guy from Tennessee, but the way he would talk about this is saying that when you eat enough lobster, it begins to taste like soap, right? Uh, Enjoying that same burger, perfectly cooked every time. It's just not doing it so much anymore. You need to change it up, right? So Dallas Willard says that sensuality uh, can never be satisfied. It can't. If that's the way we believe we're going to find meaning or distract ourselves from the hunger we have in our souls, it's not. Sensuality can't satisfy. In fact, he says, it deadens feeling. The more we seek pleasure itself, the less we are able to enjoy things in general. So the perfect example of this is what addiction is. This is what addiction is. So it can be anything from drugs or alcohol, to sex, to shopping, to Instagram likes these days. I mean, they're writing about how people get addicted to social media approval, right? And it's because it's the same process in your brain when something good happens. When you get a paycheck, you get a chemical release called dopamine, and it makes you feel good. And makes you think, hey, I'm doing well right now because something good happened. And, uh, but it becomes less and less satisfying. So, addictions are spent chasing that original high forever, no matter what it is. It can be anything. But chasing that original high all the time, and getting less and less satisfaction, and then losing more and more resources as we pursue that. And your existence as an addicted person becomes uh, not being happy when you experience that thing that caused you some pleasure in the beginning, the pleasure is relief. It's just that you're relieved that you're not wanting it in the moment. And so it's, it's a dead end. It's just, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, this, this applies, <laughs> and it's good to know about. And so uh, the second thing Solomon tries to do is pursue wisdom. And uh, like I said, uh, wisdom is important, but it's not the absolute point. It is a light. It shows you the way. It's a means. It's not an end. It's a sign pointing to what is truly satisfying. So Uh, We've been talking about uh, the topic of wisdom in the book of Proverbs for the entire quarter in CSM. And uh, the word picture for wisdom in Hebrew is awesome. It's a hokma, is how you say it. And it refers to a skill that a skilled laborer would have. So like a craftsperson who makes a house or a pair of pants or a tool is a craftsman. And that skill they're talking about is applied to our daily living. So what the Proverbs is calling us to do is live life and craft it well. That's what it's calling us to do. And so what does Solomon say about this? In, in verse 13, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly or foolishness. It's better to be wise than it is to be a fool. And there's more, in the same way that there's more gain in having the light on than being in the dark. But then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will all happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And So the idea is, again, wisdom is important. It's not the point. It's better to have the lights on than to find your way by bumping into everything on the other side of the room, right? It hurts less to be wise. And uh, so I'm going to talk for a few minutes here about uh, what, a, what research has shown actually does kind of craft a well-lived life. Uh, this is a secular source, but uh, I think it's consistent with Scripture entirely. And the idea here is that whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, this is true for you, and it's going to be helpful as you pursue the Lord. Uh, I made the mistake in college um, of being kind of monk-like, not enjoying things on purpose as I was seeking the Lord. And let me be clear about this. There are times uh, that you need to pursue spiritual disciplines. Like you need to fast from sometimes food and other stuff you enjoy to pray to increase your focus. Um, There's going to be times where you should be in solitude even though friendships are absolutely crucial and is the norm. um, But we're not supposed to reject these things entirely. Like, they have a place in our pursuit of God. And so this outline is in your bulletins. Um, It's under the heading Seligman's Elements of Positive Psychology. So I think the reason this is important is uh, because Dallas Willard says that it's the responsibility of each individual Christian to cultivate an enjoyable life under Christ's loving rule, otherwise sin may appear attractive, right? As John Piper would say, no one sins out of a duty, right? We don't sin out of duty because we think we should. We sin because we think we have to, because we need a pick-me-up. And so what I'm talking about is structuring our lives with things that we know are good for us to kind of help us as we are making Jesus the center of our lives, okay? But the first one that Seligman uh, mentions is positive emotions, So we know we're not talking about just pleasures, right? Because we just talked about that. That begins to wear out. Your feeling for it begins to wear out. But it's still possible to have positive emotions per day and reduce frustrations, not just by removing the annoyance or being in a more pleasant place. Our attitude is a major way that we improve these things. So if you're patient, you suffer less, right? If you're kind to people, you're going to have more smiles. I mean, they're just. if you're thankful, it's likelier that you'll be content. And so these virtues are absolutely huge. These attitudes are going to help us experience more positive emotions while also being good for the world, right? And so that's really important. Uh, secondly, we all need stuff to engage in. Uh, one of my favorite books, I have this in print form and an audio, because it is, I'm a little bit nerdy, but also, this is super, super important stuff for me, right? Um, Huge book uh, called Flow, and it's about these experiences, and it could be anything. It could be a work project, it could be a sport. Like, surfing is absolutely a flow activity. Like, it it captures your attention the whole time. But a flow activity is when you're really in the zone. I don't know if you guys ever felt that before. When you're playing music, when you're working on something, and what it allows you to do is forget the world outside of you because your attention is totally into that thing you're doing. And so, what, the way he describes it is it's in between being anxious and bored, right? When you start something new, sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. You've really got to figure, like when you start learn a new language or something, you're totally lost. But then they learn to expose you to it in a way where you kind of recognize it and it's still a little bit difficult, but it's interesting now. Right? It's not impossible. It's interesting. But it's not so easy that you get bored. So if anxiety is here and boredom is down here, a flow activity or an engagement activity is when you're challenged and you're improving your skills and you're learning things, but it's not wearing you out. It's actually life-giving. And so the more... Uh, situations like that we have in life, whether it's learning or serving or working on something, the more well-off we're going to be. It's, it's good for us to do those things. And the Lord does tell us to do things with all of our might, right? Third, we need quality relationships in life. Again, Christian, not Christian, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, John Ortberg said, there's that God-shaped hole in our hearts that only God can fill. That's what this book is about, Ecclesiastes. And he says, but we also have the human-shaped hole in our hearts that God refuses to fill. You don't get away from needing human relationships. There's a very big reason why Jesus says that the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love God with absolutely everything so that you desire what he desires, so that you are becoming like him. And the next step, you could even say an expression of that commandment, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is a massive benefit to us, not just because God tells us to do it. He tells us to do it because it's good for us. It's in the plan. But there's a psychologist from Harvard named Dan Gilbert who said, if I wanted to know how happy you were, I would not ask your income level, your job, or your education level. And he says, I wouldn't even ask your religion. I would ask about the quality of your human relationships. And so as a pastor, I'm like, what do you mean you're going to ask their religion? Right? It's like my job. I think that's really important, but I think the reason that he says that, and the reason it's true, is because really unfortunately, really tragically, um, there's plenty of Christians who just don't love their neighbors themselves. I mean, if you're not doing it right, then you're not going to love your neighbors yourself, and you're not going to get that benefit, right? Oftentimes, we're not able to live up to our own beliefs, which means we're going to, you know, miss out on the benefits, and that's why we have discipleship to Jesus, so that we continually get better at these things. Uh, Fourth, We all need little achievements to pursue. Um, And so, basically goals. Like if we don't have targeted goals that we're trying to reach, the amount of potential in us is just gonna be wasted. There's gonna be so many resources left on the table, so many underdeveloped talents. We each need to have goals. It's good stewardship to have goals that lead us to achievement. And then fifth, Seligman mentions what Ecclesiastes is all about and frustrated about and screaming about. We need meaning. Humans need meaning. We are built uh, to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. And uh, if the way that I would kind of differ in opinion than Seligman here, and I think Solomon would disagree too, is that Seligman's uh, statement that we need meaning doesn't go high enough. It's not specific enough. He simply defines meaning, and this is legitimate, but it's not going to do the job. Uh, he defines meaning as having something bigger than yourself, which uh, most of us do, right? I mean, if you don't have something bigger than yourself, you're really in trouble. But even if you do have something a little bit bigger than yourself, that doesn't solve the problem. It needs to be the right thing that's bigger than you, which is what Ecclesiastes is pointing to, which is Jesus Christ who is eternal and has a plan for the world and who owns this stuff and wants to change your life. All right. And so I spoke a few weeks ago about being so frustrated and and trying to find a sense of meaning. This was exactly my issue where I had a sense of purpose and meaning in high school that was energizing. I mean, it kept me out of trouble. I made good decisions to keep myself on the right track because my goal in life was to be the best possible example I could be for my future children, because I was trying to lead my family. That was it, as a young person. As odd as that is, that was my purpose in life. And then, in college, pretty early, I realized, my great-grandkids probably won't know my name, right? I realized it's going to end there. Like, what if one of them blows it? You know, what if it ends up, you know, really just undoing all the work that I've worked so hard to do. And in that moment, I realized it's got to be bigger than family, right? It's got to be bigger than your denomination. It's got to be bigger than the church. God has big plans. Um, It's got to be bigger than your country. It's got to be the ultimate, which is the Lord who created us, right? Right? And so, again, these things are important. We do need to be stewards of our families, of our countries, of our people, for sure. Uh, But to look at them as our ultimate identity giver is a mistake. It will cause you to demonize competitors and to not be loving towards them. It's going to cause a ton of problems. And so, going after pleasure isn't going to do it. Uh, Even living wisely and doing things that are good for you and enjoying those benefits don't aim high enough. Like I said, he kind of grows up a little bit and finally says, work. I will find my meaning through work. I'll accomplish things. I'll be important because of what I've given other people. And that's what he tries to do. And in verse 22, he says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart when which he toils beneath the sun? So even this, even working, he he puts his identity in this. He seeks to feel accomplished and important and significant through his work and he tests it and he does big projects and it still doesn't do it for him. And he realizes that work can't be our ultimate purpose. And I think a more recent voice on this is A.W. Tozer who passed away in the 60s, I believe, but he was a preacher who put it really well, cracked me up the first time I read this, but he says, "Uh, some would insist that our chief purpose in life is to work. No other place in the world since the days of Adam to this present time has given more honor to work than on the North American continent. Not that we like to work, we just like to talk about what an honorable thing it is. Have you ever stopped to consider what work is? Let me put it in its simplest form. Work is moving things and rearranging them. We have something over here and we put it over there. Something is in the pail and we put it on the side of the house, which we call painting. Something is in the cupboard, so we work and put that in a skillet, and that is called cooking. But what is the result of all of this? Why do we do all this? Why put that green, red, or white paint in that pail and put it on your house? You say, in order that the house might not be affected by the weather, and that it might stay nice and look good. That's very good. But there was never a house built yet that will not get run down, rot, and finally be replaced by something better. Nobody can convince me that I'm only made to work like a farm horse without having any future or any reason by that work. A man can work all his life, be identified because of that work, retire, lose his purpose, and die, because that was the purpose. The end of work, or the end result of work, he says, is total futility. And so again, it's, work is important, but it's not the point. And the incorrect response would be to be lazy. (laughs) Well, if it's not everything, then it's nothing. Lousy attitude. Work is absolutely still important. Dallas Willard talks about how the point of work is that it's the place where we learn most often how to do things as Jesus would do in our position. It's not our biggest identifier, the job we do, but how we do it makes Jesus look good. And how we do it forms us to be as Jesus would be as he's working. Willard says it doesn't matter whether you're making axe, handles, or tacos. The quality of your work is extremely important to God and he wants it done well. And so to reframe the point of it, not just a paycheck, not just recognition, but the highest purpose to be, this is where I train to be who Jesus would be in my position. Then your work becomes meaningful no matter what work your is. So an example of this um, <clears throat> uh, it comes from Tim Keller who is a pastor in New York City and uh, I really look up to him a lot because, man, he's in New York City. Like, you've got some extreme diversity of beliefs out there. You're getting some weird new thoughts coming out of New York. And uh, it's extremely diverse economically, ethnically. Um, There's so many people, right? And he's able to present the gospel to people in ways where they can kind of understand it. That's an extreme talent. Very, very good at it. But um, in this city where you've got people who are super ambitious and some people are just trying to stay alive... (laughs) Uh, there was a lady who started coming to his church, and uh, he, asked her about, uh, he asked her about her story, and she's, she's one of the ambitious ones. right? She came to New York City to really succeed and make a lot of money and, and get famous and all that stuff, live the good life. And she's working at an advertising agency, <clears throat> and this thing happens where a mistake is made. And it's no one's fault exactly. <laughs> you could blame five other people for it, and she could get blamed, and she was the lowest on the totem pole. And so she was almost convinced she was going to get blamed and then lose her job. And uh, so she's, she's just thinking, that's the end of it. I'm going to have to go back home. And uh, they go into this meeting, you know, with the boss who's furious about this loss. Like, this was a real swing and a miss here. He's mad. And uh, she's thinking, my days are numbered. I'm going to be fired by the end of this meeting. She goes in, and uh, her direct supervisor and a bunch of other people are in there, too. And the boss is saying, who let this happen? Like, we this is a stupid mistake. We could have dealt with this. We didn't have to lose all this money, all this. And she's she's not going to say anything, but she knows it's coming at her. And then all of a sudden, her supervisor, uh, you know, puts his hand up and says, hey, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I should have trained my subordinates better, Right. And uh, what, And he's like, you sure? He's like, it's, it's you? And he's like, I could, yeah, I, it's, it's my fault. I could have trained her better, and this wouldn't have happened. And so the lady feels like she just escaped sudden death here. I mean, like, she totally thought she was going to get killed for this. And so the boss is like, all right, don't let it happen again. Whatever, meeting's over. She comes up to him after her supervisor and says, I mean, this is a competitive industry. <laughs> For a long time, I've had bosses who have taken credit for my good ideas. I mean, they steal my ideas. They take my work and make them look good. You just took something that could have absolutely been my mistake, and you took the blame for it. Why would you do that? And he says, well, you know, you asked, so I'm going to tell you. And he says, "Uh, I'm a Christian, and believe Jesus, who is perfect, took the sins of the entire world for me. He took the hit for me. And so, I'm a student of his, and I train to do the same thing. Like, I just do what he does. I do what the person who saved me does. And her next words were, where do you go to church? This is how Tim Keller finds out about this, right? And so, what did this guy do? A lot like my dad, a lot like Steve, day-to-day life, living the values that he actually has, right? I don't think he manufactured this moment. It just came out that he is bearing witness to his colleagues, not making a show of it, but when the opportunity arises, says, I'm aware of what you're all chasing. I'm getting paid too, (laughs) right? I like my job too, but there's something in my life that is so much better that this job uh, can offer that I'm going to be okay if I get slowed down or if I get in trouble for something, right? This is a freeing way to live, and the best part is that it lets other people know about the hope we have. So, Ecclesiastes can get pretty heavy, right? Um, pretty thick. You might not always be in the mood for it. But uh, I'm going to give you a takeaway that kind of sums up, I think, this chapter and the broader theme of the book. This takeaway is this any important pursuit without God is going to be ultimately disappointing. And the reason is because we are ignoring the whole point, which is to be with God. The point of walking is not to arrive, the point of walking is to walk with God, the point of working. You need to accomplish things, but the ultimate point isn't to accomplish. The point is to be with God as you're working. So, the body without the spirit is dead. Faith without works is dead. And life without God is dead. Life without God is dead compared to what it could be. With him energizing us, with us following his leading. But the good news is, with God even the dead can be resurrected. That's what he plans on doing with each of us. I'm going to give you two practices, right? So that's the takeaway. Two practices that you can begin to start doing even as you drive home, maybe, right? Um, First, I think it's really helpful to not just try to tone out boredom when it comes. When disappointment comes, when we're bored for a second... When you get enough rest to actually take a second and think, and boredom hits and you're tempted to turn on the radio or turn on Netflix or something, resist that habit. It's not even an urge in the beginning, it's really just a habit, but just delay that for a second and begin to interpret that boredom, that desire for distraction as your soul's hunger for God because that is what it is. These are the opportunities that we exercise the faith that God is more enjoyable than everything he's made. So begin interpreting boredom as a hunger for God um, I also think it helps to define boredom. The best, the best uh, definition I've ever heard of boredom is the desire for desires. I just love that. You just want to want something, right? Um, but the kingdom of God, as I've heard it defined, is at the very, very least desiring the desiring desires of God, right? So boredom means I'm looking for something to want. To be an active member of the kingdom of God means I'm learning how to want what God wants. That becomes our pursuit, And it can provide those flow activities and that engagement that we're looking for. And then secondly, uh, on the opposite side of boredom, when you experience something that you really enjoy, train yourself to ask the question, how is God more enjoyable than this? That's the greatest part of the experience. I enjoy this thing, but I know that this experience that that I'm having, whether it's an activity, whether it's a person I'm hanging out with, whether it's a work project, whenever we enjoy stuff, start asking, how does this point to the goodness of God? How is this just a foreshadowing of the enjoyment that God has built me to have in Him, right? Thank you for joining us for the teaching here at The Cross Loganville. Let me encourage you to access our website, TheCrossLoganVille.org Tons of information uh, will answer many of your questions Maybe you've been pondering what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ or maybe just uh, some other issues you're going through and you would like, uh, I-, I need to talk to someone. We would love to help you Contact us via email info at TheCrossLoganVille.org or you can call us at 770 554 33 God bless you. Make it a great day.